0: The story is about Scrooge, a grumpy man that sees the bad in everything, especially Christmas. I do hope you are not a Scrooge, and I also hope this helps you get a good night's rest at this magical time of the year. Special thanks to Farming Beats, iTunes listener, for your lovely review. Farming Beats is a great name, by the way, and I'm really glad that I've been able to help you get the rest you need. I'd also like to say thanks to all you listeners who have supported the podcast throughout the year. If the podcast has helped you, and you haven't done so already, please jump into iTunes or wherever you're listening subscribe and leave a review. It really does help me reach more people who need rest and it really doesn't take long at all. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the readings. A Christmas Carol in Prose Being a Ghost Story of Christmas Stave One, Marley's Ghost Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker and the chief mourner. Scrooge signed it and Scrooge's name was good upon change for anything he chose to put his hand to. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. Mind, I don't mean to say that I know, of my own knowledge, what there is particularly dead about a doornail. I might have been inclined myself to regard a coffin nail as the deadest piece of ironmongery in the trade, but the wisdom of our ancestors is in the smile, and my unhallowed hands shall not disturb it, or the country's done for. You will, therefore, permit me to repeat... Emphatically, that Marley was as dead as a door nail. Scrooge knew he was dead. Of course he did. How could it be otherwise? Scrooge and he were partners for I don't know how many years. Scrooge was his sole executor, his sole administrator his sole assign, his sole residuary legatee, his sole friend and sole mourner. And even Scrooge was not so dreadfully cut up by the sad event, but that he was an excellent man of business on the very day of the funeral and solemnized it with an undoubted bargain. The mention of Marley's funeral brings me back to the point I started from. There is no doubt that Marley was dead. This must be distinctly understood, or nothing wonderful can come of the story. I am going to relate if we were not perfectly convinced that Hamlet's father died before the play began, there would be nothing more remarkable in his taking a stroll at night, in an easterly wind, upon his own ramparts, than there would be in any other middle-aged gentleman rashly turning out after dark in a breezy spot. Say St. Paul's churchyard, for instance, literally to astonish his son's weak mind. Scrooge never painted out old Marley's name. There it stood, years afterwards, above the warehouse door. Scrooge and Marley The firm was known as Scrooge and Marley. Sometimes people knew the business called Scrooge and Scrooge and sometimes Marley but he answered to both names. It was all the same to him. Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, Scrooge, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner, hard and sharp as flint, from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire, secret and self-contained, and solitary as an oyster. The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheek, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red, his thin lips blue, and spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice. A frosty rhyme was on his head, and on his elbows, and his wiry chin. He carried his own low temperature always about with him. He iced his coffee in the dog days, and didn't thaw it one degree at Christmas. External heat and cold had little influence on Scrooge. No warmth could warm, no wintry weather chill him. No wind that blew was bitterer than he. No falling snow was more intent upon its purpose. No pelting rain less open to entreaty. Foul weather didn't know where to have him. The heaviest rain and snow and hail and sleet could boast of the advantage over him in only one respect. They often came down handsomely and Scrooge never did. Nobody ever stopped him in the street to say with gladsome looks. My dear Scrooge, how are you? When will you come to see me? No beggars implored him to bestow a trifle, no children asked him what it was a clerk, no man or woman ever once in all his life inquired the way to such and such a place of Scrooge. Even the blind men's dogs appeared to know him, and when they saw him coming on, would tug their owners into doorways and up courts, and then would wag their tails as though they said, no eye at all is better than an evil eye, dark master. But what did Scrooge care? It was the very thing he liked. To edge his way along the crowded paths of life, warning all human sympathy to keep its distance, was what the knowing ones call nuts to Scrooge. Once upon a time, of all the good days in the year, On Christmas Eve, Old Scrooge sat busy in his counting house. It was cold, bleak, biting weather, foggy withal, and he could hear people in the court outside go wheezing up and down, beating their hands upon their breasts and stamping their feet upon the pavement stones to warn them. The city clocks had only just gone three, but it was quite dark already. It had not been light all day, and candles were flaring in the windows of the neighbouring offices, like ruddy smears upon the palpable brown air. The fog came pouring in at every chink and keyhole, and was so dense without that, although the court was of the narrowest, the houses opposite were mere phantoms. To see the dingy cloud come drooping down, obscuring everything, one might have thought that nature lived hard by and was brewing on a large scale. The door of Scrooge's counting house was open, that he might keep his eye upon his clerk, who, in a dismal little cell beyond a sort of tank, was copying letters. Scrooge had a very small fire, but the clerk's fire was so very much smaller that it looked like one coal. But he couldn't replenish it, for Scrooge kept the coal box in his own room. And so surely, as the clerk came in with the shovel, the master predicted that it would be necessary for them to part. Wherefore the clerk put on his white comforter and tried to warn himself at the candle, in which effort, not being a man of strong imagination, he failed. A Merry Christmas, Uncle! God save you!' cried a cheerful voice. It was the voice of Scrooge's nephew, who came upon him so quickly, that this was the first intimation he had of his approach. Bah, said Scrooge, humbug. He had so heated himself with rapid walking in the fog and frost, this nephew of Scrooge's, that he was all in a glow, his face was ruddy and handsome, His eyes sparkled and his breath smoked again. Christmas a humbug, uncle, said Scrooge's nephew. You don't mean that, I am sure. I do, said Scrooge. Merry Christmas. What right have you to be merry? What reason have you to be merry? You're poor enough come then returned the guilty nephew what right do you have to be dismal what reason have you to be morose you're rich enough Scrooge having no better answer ready on the spur of the moment said bah again and followed it up with humbug ''Don't be cross, uncle,'' said the nephew. ''What else can I be?'' returned the uncle. ''When I live in such a world of fools as this. ''Merry Christmas, out upon Merry Christmas. ''What Christmas time to you but a time for paying bills without money.'' A time for finding yourself a year older, and not an hour richer. A time for balancing your books, and having every item in them, through a round dozen of months presented dead against you. If I could work my will, said Scrooge indignantly, Every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled with his own pudding and buried with a stake of holy through his heart. He should. Uncle pleaded the nephew. Nephew returned the uncle sternly. Keep Christmas in your own way and let me keep it in mine. Keep it, repeated, Scrooge's nephew, but you don't keep it. Let me leave it alone then, said Scrooge. Much good may it do you. Much good it has ever done you. There are many things from which I might have derived good, by which I have not profited, I dare say, returned the nephew, Christmas among the rest. But I am sure I have always thought of Christmas time, when it has come round, apart from the veneration due to its sacred name and origin if anything belonging to it can be apart from that, as a good time, a kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time, the only time I know of, in the long calendar year, when men and women seem by one consent to open their shut-up hearts freely and to think of people below them as if they really were fellow passengers to the grave, and not another race of creatures bound on other journeys. And therefore, uncle, though it has never put a scrap of gold or silver in my pocket, I believe that it has done me good, and will do me good, and I say, God bless it. The clerk in the tank involuntarily applauded. Becoming immediately sensible of the impropriety, he poked the fire and extinguished the last frail spark forever. Let me hear another sound from you, said Scrooge, and you'll keep your Christmas by losing your situation. You're quite a powerful speaker, sir," he added, turning to his nephew. "I wonder why you don't go into Parliament." Don't be angry, Uncle. Come, dine with us tomorrow," Scrooge said that he would see him. Yes, indeed he did, he went the whole length of the expression, and said that he would see him in the extremity first, but why, said Scrooge's nephew, why, why did you get married, said Scrooge, because I fell in love, because you fell in love, said Scrooge, as if that were the only one thing in the world more ridiculous than a Merry Christmas. Good afternoon. Nay, uncle, but you never came to see me before that happened. Why give it as a reason for not coming now? Good afternoon, said Scrooge. I want nothing from you, I ask nothing of you. Why cannot we be friends? Good afternoon, said Scrooge. I am sorry with all my heart to find you so resolute. We have never had any quarrel to which I have been a party. But I have made the trial in homage to Christmas and I'll keep my Christmas humour to the last. So a Merry Christmas, Uncle. Good afternoon, said Scrooge, and a Happy New Year. Good afternoon, said Scrooge. His nephew left the room without an angry word notwithstanding. He stopped at the outer door, to bestow the greetings of the season on the clerk, who, cold as he was, was warmer than Scrooge, for he returned them cordially. ''There's another fellow,'' muttered Scrooge, who overheard him. ''My clerk, with fifteen shillings a week, and a wife and family,'' talking about a merry Christmas, I'll retire to bedlam. This lunatic, in letting Scrooge's nephew out, had let two other people in. They were portly gentlemen, pleasant to behold, and now stood with their hats off in Scrooge's office. They had books and papers in their hands, and bowed to him. Scrooge and Marley's, I believe, said one of the gentlemen, referring to the list. Have I the pleasure of addressing Mr. Scrooge or Mr. Marley? Mr. Marley has been dead these seven years, Scrooge replied. He died seven years ago, this very night. We have no doubt his liberality is well represented by his surviving partner, said the gentleman presenting his credentials. I certainly was, for they had been two kindred spirits, at the ominous word liberality, Scrooge frowned and shook his head and handed the credentials back. At this festive season of the year, Mr. Scrooge said the gentleman taking up a pen, it is more than usually desirable that we should make some slight provision for the poor and destitute who suffer greatly at the present time. Many thousands are in want of common necessaries. Hundreds of thousands are in want of common comforts, sir. Are there no prisons? asked Scrooge. Plenty of prisons, said the gentleman, laying down the pen again. "'And the union workhouses?' demanded Scrooge. "'Are they still in operation?' "'They are still,' returned the gentleman. "'I wish I could say they were not.' "'The treadmill and the poor law are in full vigour. then asked Scrooge. "'Both very busy, sir.' Oh, I was afraid from what you said at first that something had occurred to stop them in their useful course, said Scrooge. I am very glad to hear it. Under the impression that they scarcely furnish Christian cheer of mind or body to the multitude, returned the gentleman... A few of us are endeavouring to raise a fund to buy the poor some meat and drink and means of warmth. We chose this time because it is a time of all others when want is keenly felt and abundance rejoices. What shall I put you down for? Nothing, Scrooge replied. You wish to be anonymous. I wish to be left alone, said Scrooge. Since you ask me what I wish, gentlemen, that is my answer. I don't make merry myself at Christmas, and I can't afford to make idle people merry. I help to support the establishments I have mentioned They cost enough, and those who are badly off must go there. Many can't go there, and many would rather die. If they would rather die, said Scrooge, they had better do it, and decrease the surplus population. Besides, excuse me, I don't know that. "'But you might know it,' observed the gentleman. "'It's not my business,' Scrooge returned. "'It's enough for a man to understand his own business "'and not to interfere with other people's. "'Mine occupies me constantly. "'Good afternoon, gentlemen.' "'Seeing clearly,' that it would be useless to pursue their point, the gentleman withdrew. Scrooge resumed his labors with an improved opinion of himself, and in a more facetious temper than was usual with him. Meanwhile the fog and darkness thickened so, that people ran about with flaring links, preferring their services to go before horses in carriages and conduct them on their way. The ancient tower of a church whose gruff old bell was always peeping slyly down at Scrooge out of a gothic window in the wall became invisible and struck the hours and quarters in the clouds with tremulous vibrations afterwards as if its teeth were chattering in its frozen head up there. The cold became intense. In the main street at the corner of the court some labourers were repairing the gas pipes and had lighted a great fire in a brazier, round which a party of ragged men and boys were gathered warming their hands and winking their eyes before the blaze in rapture. The water plug being left in solitude its overflowings suddenly congealed and turned into misanthropic ice. The brightness of the shops, where holy sprigs and berries crackled in the lamp heat of the windows, made pale faces ruddy as they passed. Poulturers and grocer's trades became a splendid joke, A glorious pageant with which it was next to impossible to believe that such dull principles as bargain and sale had anything to do. The Lord Mayor in the stronghold of the mighty mansion house gave orders to his fifty cooks and butlers to keep Christmas as a Lord Mayor's household should and even the little tailor, whom he had fined five shillings on the previous Monday for being drunk and bloodthirsty in the streets, stirred up tomorrow's pudding in his garret, while his lean wife and the baby sallied out to buy the beef. Foggier yet and colder, piercing, searching, biting cold. If the good St. Dunstan had but nipped the evil spirit's nose with a touch of such weather as that, instead of using his familiar weapons, then indeed he would have roared to lusty purpose. The owner of one scant young nose gnawed and mumbled, by the hungry cold, as bones are gnawed by dogs, stooped down at Scrooge's keyhole to regale him with a Christmas carol. But at the first sound of, God bless you, merry gentlemen, may nothing you dismay, Scrooge seized the ruler with such energy of action that the singer fled in terror, leaving the keyhole to the fog and even more congenial frost. At the length the hour of shutting up the counting house arrived, with an ill will Scrooge dismounted from his stool and tacitly admitted the fact that to the expectant clerk in the tank, who instantly snuffed his candle out and put on his hat. You'll want all day tomorrow, I suppose, said Scrooge. If quite convenient, sir. It's not convenient, said Scrooge, and it's not fair. If I was to stop half a crown for it, You'd think yourself ill-used. I'll be bound. The clerk smiled faintly. And yet, said Scrooge, You don't think me ill-used when I pay a day's wages for no work. The clerk observed that it was only once a year. A poor excuse for picking a man's pocket. Every twenty fifth of December, said Scrooge, buttoning his great coat to the chin. But I suppose you must have the whole day. Be here all the earlier next morning. The clerk promised that he would, and Scrooge walked out with a growl. The office was closed in a twinkling, and the clerk, with the long ends of his white comforter, dangling below his waist, for he boasted no great coat, went down a slide on Cornhill, at the end of a lane of boys, twenty times in the honour of its being Christmas Eve, and then ran home to Camden Town, as hard as he could pelt, to play at Blind Man's Buff. Scrooge took his melancholy dinner, in his usual melancholy tavern, and having read all the newspapers and beguiled the rest of the evening, with his banker's book, went home to bed. He lived in chambers which had once belonged to his deceased partner. They were a gloomy suite of rooms in a lowering pile of building up a yard where it had so little business to be that one could scarcely help fancying it must have run there when it was a young house playing at hide and seek with other houses and have forgotten the way out again it was old enough now and dreary enough for nobody lived in it but Scrooge the other rooms being all let out as offices the yard was so dark that even Scrooge who knew its every stone, was fain to grope with his hands. The fog and frost so hung about the black old gateway of the house, that it seemed as if the genius of the weather sat in mournful meditation on the threshold. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you're feeling drowsy. I look forward to bringing you another episode very soon. Until next time, good night.